Welcome to the show, Course Correction. Setting your life's direction and your GPS for success. Leadership, management, marketing, and strategy that works. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jeff Darville. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Darville, and with me today is John Hardy. John is an author and consultant, advisor and strategist. His career included managing his real estate development company, which specialized in building carriage homes in Canada, as well as a consumer foods company. His accounting background helped him develop flow or zero-based auditing, which helped turn around companies. As an auditor with Deloitte & Touche, he audited foreign-owned subsidiaries in Hungary and worked out of London. Today, John and I are going to discuss organizational theory according to most management textbooks, uncover the game further with some personal observations, connect that to national culture, and drill down specifically on U.S. presidential politics. Please join us. We are back, and um, you know, I want to uh, welcome John Hardy back to this uh, podcast. He and I have yeah, been doing you, a long Jeff. series, and we'll continue to press forward. So thank you, John. My system, which basically has the three types of participants, one being the player, the other one being the trooper, and the third being the outsider. Right. And, then and for those of you who aren't that. familiar, um, you'll have to check oh, out John. Exactly. Book. If we I start wanna, to get into Yeah, th this is... Okay, we touch on some... We're going to be using some possibly idiosyncratic terminology that we're going to flesh out for you. Okay, so sure. That's that right. John has used in his book that um, would be helpful. We're going to, to get create. into what it is. Yeah. And so that's to say that take any environment, what are you going to find uh, in that group? I'm saying there's three essential ways to participate in that group, but that each one of these ways is also characteristic of a certain type of character so that they will almost always participate in that way. So the three ways I would I, I term them as player. Uh, the other one would be could be trooper or soldier. A third one is outsider. The basic premise is that when you're in a group, the vast majority of people will be in a sense a game taker. And that is to say, they will take the situation and work attempt to work within it. They will try to match their skills with those of the group. And of course, they will try to minimize their uh, weaknesses. And that will be their impression management within the group. And that is normal behavior. And each, all these different people, we'll call that the norm because the vast majority of us are doing that. And probably all of us are doing that to some extent. And it's the way we engage with the group. However, I would say there's two, in a sense, exceptions to this. And that is on the one hand, we have the outsider who is an individual who, by their nature, are not that happy to be in the group. They're reluctantly in a group. Their preference is ultimately to be not necessarily not in a group, but certainly a group of their own kind. They will tend to see, let's just say, a group thrown together, such as a cocktail party, such as you know, a bunch of people together, like at a resort, who randomly find themselves together. Um, they will really be a little bit wary in terms of engaging with that group. And a big part of it for them is that they have a very strong internal world, a highly defined internal world. And very often the group is a threat to that. And that would be the thing that they would hold in common. And then we have the player. And the player is the individual 
who is in a way the polar opposite of the outsider. This is the person who gets into any group situation, understands the dynamics, very good at reading people and reading who's reading status, who's got status within the, within the group. And they're very good at acquiring status for themselves. What you have are these three types of individuals. Now, one of the things that you were saying, Jeff. The, just for the listener, if I can, in contextualizing this further, John and I have yes. been going back and forth on these ideas for some time. And since we met, the topic of conversation is how do we understand the game and the people in the game, essentially. And Precisely. I've written some articles on Substack where oh. you're this podcast feed is also hosted. And we're just going to be, you know, we're working through these ideas. I'm uh, exploring some of John's work. He's, you know, offering some ideas. I'm integrating that with my own scholarship on leadership, kinetic leadership articles that I've had published, my own background in organizational leadership. So we're trying to integrate and synthesize two perspectives, John's and my own, along with the vast resources of scholarship and authors and history that we're drawing from, right? So we're, you know, as Isaac Newton said, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. I know that was a dig on Leibniz, but you know, it's become its own, <laughs> it's, it's become its own phrase that we all understand. We're going to, we, we want to pull from many other people as we think about these topics and try and extend what in, you know, PhD doctoral work, we're talking about extending theory. So John has some, uh, a very uh, interesting theory that explains a lot of things that he's experienced in his life and that other people experience in their lives. And we're going to try and break down that theory into its constituent parts and be able to explain the pieces and how they relate to one another. Yes. No, excellent. It, Thank you. Yeah. yeah so in doing you. so, my comment to John was these terms, um, you know, the way that we can view any organization is either as a pyramid, which every organizational chart that you've ever seen in your life is a pyramid. The CEO is on top. The low-level frontline employees are on the bottom. This is management 101. Um, servant leadership, in contrast, flips the pyramid conceptually, at least that's the idea, and says, no, no, the leader's on the bottom, and they're serving the customers at the very top, and the employees, they have to be well taken care of because the leader accomplishes his purposes through supporting the organization of employees in order to reach the customers. Again, that's a servant leadership theory tries to flip the hierarchy on its head. And again, I have some issues with that. I think that it's one of those leadership theories that sounds great in theory, doesn't often work as well in practice. There's reasons why. Um, but I just would say most people are familiar with the hierarchy model of organizations. Another way you could look at an organization is kind of a network of hub and spokes with, within concentric circles. So if we just take the circle model, you have rings of circles, like you drop a pebble in the um, pond mm -hmm. and you see the rings of the circles and the inner circle. And this is often the, the model I use to describe stakeholder theory. Another leadership theory, stakeholder theory essentially says that there are many interest groups, publics and um, so publics meaning uh, you know, the media and the community and environmentalist groups and activist groups and regulator regulators and the government. So all these different groups, they all have some stake in the organization. But I just like to always point out that that's different than having a share in the organization. They're not stockholders and stakeholders, but that word sounds a lot like shareholders and stockholders, but they're not. The inner circle of the organization is by necessity, the core, the nucleus of this 
organism is a of, of shareholders, uh, the owners of the organization. And they have, a greatest, they have the greatest interest in the organization because they're financially tied into it. They've founded the organization in, in virtually every case or, or, they're, or they've inherited <laughs> the, mm-hmm. uh, the rights of founders. Is, and you know, in any organization, if you own 51% of the organization, you control the direction of that organization in the future. You don't have to own 49, you don't have to own more than 51%, but you have to own at least 51% or control 51%. You know, so you don't even have to own all the shares. If you control 51%, you could have a hedge fund like Vanguard or BlackRock that controls 40%. You could, you could own 11 as a, an activist investor, but as long as those votes are going your way, you control that organization. So the inner core is the shareholders typically, and that uh, doesn't, only include owners, but sometimes employees who are also owners. You're familiar with, everyone's familiar with stock options. So we all know this, how this kind of works, but the CEO, the chairman of the board, typically the board of directors, uh, including the chairman could be a seven, nine, 11 member, whatever, however many members you can, they can make it up. So the shareholders, so again, management theory, shareholders supposedly elect the chairman of the board who hires mm-hmm. the CEO to manage the corporation as an inner core of that organization. And I feel like this is very explanatory, but I just want to frame out the model so that people are familiar with what we're talking about. If anyone hears this this podcast, I want to connect it back to some of the management stuff that you'll see in the textbooks, because we can't just skip that in in my mind. I I want to show where the faults are and the flaws in this, some old thinking and why that this model is more the, it's, it's more of a psychological and pre- the predictive value of John's model is more beneficial to organizational behavior than the, some of the other models. So the shareholder it's model talks about the ownership, but it doesn't mm-hmm. talk about how the organization actually functions. So the CEO exactly. occupies, occupies the center of that circle. And then in concentric circles, you have other people that are affected by it with con- consumers and the public and employees and um, uh, suppliers and vendors on the outer rim of that. So as you describe this circle in the game of life, yes. it could be a party, as you said, it could be an, a non but Let's say within this context, team. We'll, right. so within we'll talk about it in this context, the team, right? So, and my background's in organizational leadership and often sure. we focus on the leadership, but it's, it's very important in every, uh, the classes that I've taken, we take organizational theory, multiple, we take mu- multiple classes on organizational theory, organizational culture, organizational change, organizational structure and design. So everyone loves talking about leadership. We don't talk enough about organization because organizing sounds like you're, you're sorting your socks <laughs> or it's dealing with human resources, but it's actually a very important part of life and business. So John's model, I think, deals both with leadership and organizing, but it starts with organizing, which is the best place to start. So you have the players, and I would say that they typically occupy the inner circles of the organization by, by who they are. They've, they've become the center of gravity, and they've been attracted to the center of that organization through a selection process of leadership and uh, succession from CEOs and CFOs and COOs, the C-suite tends to occupy in some sense, and the, the chairman of the board and the you know, activist shareholders, the primary, they're in the middle. They're the insiders. Then everyone else, the great unwashed, ma- unwashed masses in a company like Walmart, <laughs> you have 100,000 people, right? Yes. 999,000 of them or something close to that, 
99,900 are on the outs, uh, on the middle grade. They're in, in between. And maybe some of them are fighting their way towards the, the center, like fish up the, like the, the trout up the stream. They're trying to spawn at the very top. They're working their way really hard against the flow. And, and if they work really hard and, 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 you know, bust their tail and maybe one day they'll make it as CEO. So that's kind of this idea of the, there's some people fighting for that. And the outsiders are sitting on the outside and they seem like employees like members of the organization to most people, but they're, they're more observant and more removed and more distant from the goings on. Sometimes the outsider can, can be tempted to play the game, but they generally okay. avoid that tendency. Of course. But you because, know, because as you say, they're more independently minded. So anyway, just that's a that's a long winded way of saying I want to set the table. That's, that's oh, that, that's that's very important that you did that because it this plays out in every context. I mean, we could play this out at Christmas dinner. Uh, this is another context to organization. So let's you know you've laid out the table, so to speak, of Christmas dinner. Here we are, the players. The, uh, the various participants. Sorry, because it's difficult with the word player. I use it for this, but you could also say player is just one of the players being a participant in this bigger game, right? Right. So that, right. That, yeah. When you say confusing. player, you mean they're they're in the game. They're playing. Yeah. The so, win. other right. people play, and they simply participate, or they're members of the organization. Well, part of the no, there's, I was there, no, there's there, there, there's yeah. more there's no there's more than that because okay. in a sense, it's a, a sport analogy wouldn't be a good one because the fact is, in a sport analogy. If you've got two guys, you know, in their own basketball team, to some extent, there will be guys who are strategists, who are really thinking about the game and how it's played and what's the clever way to play. But to a large extent, they're all trying to play well. So that it's kind of all collapsed together. You know, the outsider, the player, the, uh, the, uh, the executor, the regular guy, whatever we want to call them, their behavior, actually, in that environment, or the same thing if it was a small platoon and it's infantry and they're just, you know, in battle, you'd probably find their behavior actually pretty close, wouldn't that be that, that far apart under those conditions? And that's important to look at because those are optimal conditions for all kinds of reasons. And then there's a reason, I think, from a management point of view, to try to simulate that environment as much as one can. Because yeah. it neutralizes the very thing that I'm going to be talking about. But let's. So the analogy I started using in terms of sports, because I hear when I hear the player, the word player, right. you're more familiar with hockey. I grew up playing basketball. Yeah. I love you know watching football, at least I used to, and, sure. and other sports, uh, soccer, too. Yep. So you see the players on the pitch, on the field, in the ice, in the rink. The guys on the they're they're the focus of our attention. There's whatever eleven men on a side, or eleven, you know, in World Cup soccer, football, you're going to have uh, twenty-two guys. That's where the action is. The spectators are in the arena, and and anyone watching on television is invested in what's going on, but they're not actually the players. And I think that some organizations function kind of like that. Now, again, it's weird because, like you said, the analogy breaks down because the spectators aren't really doing anything, so to speak, although they're by their cheers. And by their wearing jerseys and scarves or hats, they feel like they're part of this organization, the, the team, the, the Red Wings, the Blackhawks, the Penguins, the Maple Leafs, whomever. They feel like they're a part of it, but they're really not. The players are the ones that are actually making this thing work. And the success or failure of the team hinges on the so players. I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of an anecdote that I experienced when I was uh, at uh, – Pricewaterhouse, way back when, <laughs> in Toronto. 
Um, and this could have happened in any one of these accounting firms at the time. I remember I had a, I was, you know, I was just a junior and I remember um, I was good at squash. And so that was sort of a good way to sort of get in with the, the guys and that. And so we used to, uh, you know, drink afterwards. And when we were drinking afterwards and some of the seniors were drinking, they would, you know, give me kinds of bits of information. And I was always curious about this, you know, sort of the facts behind the facts, what really is going on. And so the way the system worked was that, you know, you went up and the big thing was to become a partner there. You, you went up through the ranks, but the key was a partner because either you made partner or else you were kind of out. And my mentor um, was, uh, I remember at the time, he was on secondment out as a VP finance somewhere. He was a real star. And he was a sort of a hot shot. He wore Italian suits way back then when, especially among accountants, nobody wore Trudy suits. Um, he was he was sort of cool. He was very hip. Uh, he was not the kind of guy you would imagine to be a CA. Extremely intelligent, uh, great at what he was doing, and he did it in his own way. So he's out there. And I remember I was uh, having, uh, we were, it was after a squash game, and the, the guy who I was playing squash with was Welsh, and it was significant because this is, again, all part of the game. He was Welsh, and there were a, lot, there were a bunch of Brits, expats from London. And the, the expats from London were a kind of little group, a little mafia within the organization, which I didn't know of when I was a junior. And they all stuck together. But him being Welsh, he was sort of on the outside of that. And so he was, you know, let's just say more forthcoming in terms of what was going on. And I remember early on, he told me that my manager, my mentor, was not going to make partner. And I asked him, well, how did you know that? He said, because he's out there on assignment. He's placed himself out of the game. And the game is in here, and it's already been decided among a certain number of people who, it, who it's going to be. And he's essentially taking himself out of the game by doing that. Right? Sure enough, he didn't make partner. Next year, he, he stuck around, did, did things differently, eventually did make partner. But the point was, that here was a perfect example of exactly that game and the kind of individuals. The players who was the small group, in that case, it was the Brits within the firm. They had no specific power on the balance sheet. Like, in other words, there was nothing on the uh, org chart that would have indicated that they had even more power than others. They were connected together. And they came from London, which is a very political environment. So they really knew the game. And so they were able to maneuver, make sure that their people moved into the right places. And over time, they were taking over the environment. Now, my partner is an example, or not my partner, but, you know, his, uh, an interesting, his last name was Darville, too. That's, that's why it's an interesting irony. Uh, was or somebody else? Was, uh, this was your manager? Yes, Jack. Okay. Um, and this is way, this is like 30 years ago. 40 years ago, my God, it's a long time ago. <laughs> and, I was th and, and the thing was, he was a classic outsider. And so let's say, I'm giving this vignette as a way of sort of going into what we're going to be talking about. So if, if you were to take a look at the, the young people who are going in 
to the organization. Uh, let's say in that case, it was very homogeneous. It was all juniors coming into the CA factory. You have to spend two years. You have to get through the exams, fail the exams, you're out. If you're in, you keep going up. Then it's partner. And if you fail that, you're out, right? And then, you know, out, you know, you get placed in a firm here and there. You have a different career path. That's sort of the way it went. Now, if you were to take these three types in terms of the juniors, when they're coming in and when we're going into the training, you would get to see the three types of individuals. One is going to be, you know, just your average guy who's just there trying to do it. He's trying to do the job. He's looking at the situation as it's being charted. For instance, as you described it, Jeff, right? That you talked about the, the classic org chart, all of it. That person, which is the majority, is going to look at that and say, yeah, that's the world. That's what it is. That's the game. That's the playing field. And that's reality, plain and simple. And they will try to do their best to, you know, get as high as they can within that because that's the game. Okay. The outsider is going to look at that and, yeah, he's going to see it. But one thing that's going to be extremely important for him or her is that he's got to express himself within it. It's not just to be one of the guys or anything like that. He has to do it somewhat differently, his own way. There's a certain self-expression that he needs. So an example, in the case of, you know, my mentor, he wore these suits, but the suits were in a way too, they were not appropriate to that game. If he'd been in Goldman Sachs or something like that, that's fine. But the thing was, that was the, the, the eccentricity was it was and because he wasn't doing it for the game. It was because he loved those Italian suits. At the same time, an example when we were juniors of a player was, all of us went out for lunch one time. We were late, which was quite typical. Uh, instead of the one hour, we came back about, you know, 40 minutes late. We're dragged into the manager's office. And it's sort of a typical thing, boys being boys and you know, whatever. And so we're going to just listen to our, you know, being raked over the coals for a little bit. And then one of the people in the group said, you know, I really feel badly, sir. And uh, I don't mind doing extra work and coming in. Right. There's the player. <laughs> right he's just Which, finessing the whole thing yeah but he also screwed everyone else over because of, he's of making himself eggs, look eggs, good possibly egg, but then no, it's possibly. like everyone has yeah no pot right but he's making himself look good and we're all going to have to do extra push-ups it's like or we're all going to have to do extra or, 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 or something exactly now like in a military environment in, in an army environment he's dead Right. Yeah. He wouldn't make right. it through the next battle. Right. right. Yeah. And that's where the trooper analogy use the word trooper. And I think exactly the different, and, and, different and, and place. This is, and you're right that the player and the trooper yeah. still show, shows up. I was trying to trying to impose on your theory, some of the traditional organizational structure terminologies that show up in the categories I'm used to. So yeah, you're right. The reason, army, the, that guy, the player gets, hazed or ostracized well it would, it would be dead be yeah. dead for doing that yeah. because the thing is you'd never be trusted again right yeah exactly and and yeah. and, and especially and if you trust your comrades if you don't know who has your back in a military setting the command precisely we've talked about this that you know seal team or um even just regular army platoon yeah. you know your your squad if you can't trust the guys around you that those are the only guys that are going to keep you alive absolutely precisely right and that's why Interesting that certain of those environments actually are game-free. And, 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 and what you read as a mixed metaphor, I think, is 
actually in the explanation of it, it's a very useful way to explain it because you were seeing the thing sort of almost like um, like you were flattening it horizontally. So it's like they're all we're all in the same metaphor. We're all in the same game. So how can you have you know players here, troopers here? Because it's just you're mixing different metaphors, unless you're all playing different games, and that's the point. Yeah, yeah. And each it's, one it's fair, and and again, you're right. I mean, what you're saying makes my mind yeah. hurt because I'm like, if that's the case, it's it's like speaking a different language, or you're Precisely. living in a completely different world. It's a different conscious dimension. It's like one person is colorblind, or or is an you know, you're different animals of different species at times. Yeah, you're, you know? you're, but you're getting reality. that's the point, and this is what makes the mind hurt because, in order to accept this. It means a real adjustment to our perception of the world around us. And the idea, and so the contention here is that a player, that category of individual, is operating under a different set of rules. They have a set of rules between themselves. And the way they see the world, quite literally, is the classic criminal mentality, what we associate with the criminal mentality. And that is that you're either kind of another criminal, another player, or you're a sucker to be taken. It's a very, very binary world and a very simple world. And it doesn't vary. And there's no learning within that. It doesn't, in other words, once they have determined that you're not a player, as far as they're concerned, you're not a player. <laughs> and they have a different but set of... Your, your mentor, Darville... Yeah, worked his way from outsider to player within a well, year. Well, no, he didn't make no, but he never made player. See what ended yeah. up happening was, <laughs> but but the that, fact that he was promoted to the partner seems to indicate he, no, he made some no, but, kind but, of a well, you know, sort of. Except in a way, what happened was he lost hmm. because he had to, and I'll give you an example of why he lost. One of the things that we used to joke about, like was, and he was totally into the dressing thing, was he despised three-piece suits. It was sort of the classic thing. Then it was just sort of dull at the end or whatever. But whatever it represented at the time, there was something that we kind of held in common was this total disdain for the three-piece suit and everything that it represented. Yeah, that's funny. Well, what did I see him in that next year? The three-piece suit. Yep. So he had. Uh, so, he had so he, he had, had to conform. Right. Conformed. He had given, right, given up some aspect but, of himself as unique. His uniqueness, but what his he would, and what he would have been would have been not a player in partner there. He would have been what I would call an alpha trooper. You see, because he he the highest they'll let you be is being useful to them, but that is death for the outsider because now you've given away your individuality. Yeah, and and so. But it is interesting, even as you describe that, I'm saying, okay, so the alpha trooper keeps the troops in line in some sense. I mean, his, his relationship is, is even though he, th he wants to think of himself as an insider, the insiders think of him as a useful tool to make sure the troops are trooping along. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Like, there, there, there's two kinds of things that they need. Generally speaking, what you need now, in his case, he was a star. And so they needed him for, let's just say, things. But generally speaking, in that environment, they wouldn't need him too much. So he was an anomaly. In most cases, he would have been better off to go off. What In that environment, what they needed was, uh, you know, the shepherds to, you know, herd the sheep. Right. 
but, uh, but they need the Brits, as you describe them as insiders, to me, I'm like, they weren't, they didn't have, you, you know, your distinction between informal and formal networks, informal yes. and formal power is interesting to me because I, I do think that the Brits are playing a game with rules that were defined by somebody else in order for them to ascend the hierarchy to make it to the 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 and that's the head of the river to spawn as the as the and, and the, the trout the work their way towards the center. Well, of course, because and, they had to close the circle. See, right. the only way that could work is those centers closed. Because if they don't have a lock on power, they all lose. And so somehow they managed to get a lock on power such that they could determine who was going to be partnering and who was not. And that was the that was the evidence. Now and that means that they could perpetuate that and would just become stronger over time. And right. so and I think the Ivy Leagues do that in many ways in the United States and certain okay. organizations. It's the, there, I, there, are, there is a dress code. I don't know what it is. I didn't attend yep. wingtip shoes or some other version of this. Certain, you know, the Oxford blue blazer. What is it? No, Bass Weegian loafers. Okay. Yeah, oh, that I was the classic uh, prep school. Uh, so the, I mean, I went to a prep school. That was the classic prep school shoe. <laughs> the right. Bass Weegian loafer. <laughs> Which is, you know, also indicates how yeah. watching someone's shoes matters to oh, people. I, I find it kind of odd and repugnant to be looking at people's shoes as if, you know, you're going to pick up on how dirty they are, which, you know, that's, but, but, or what quality is, like you say. No, and, 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 but this is, and this is just, no, but here's, here, let's just say, if, if, if we're talking, see, this is what I'm getting at. And you're absolutely right about the fact that the way I described it initially in my book, and I would actually say that this is a flaw in the book, absolutely, is that I, I gave short shrift to that which I described as a trooper, right? Because the, even the, the name is pejorative. And I think what, because I couldn't come up with a, a proper name, the outsider was obvious, the player was obvious, the, the trooper is more difficult. And I think what the troopers, and even calling them the crowd is more difficult, but what they are is they are passive to the game, that's why I use the word spectator because I was searching for something like and the they, crowd that's passive. And they are. And yeah. they are the spectator because like an example, take a look at yourself. If you were to say, which one are you? You're clearly not a player. But no. when you take a look at that organization, would you describe yourself as an outsider or as, um, as in other words, let's forget the word trooper, but in other words, would you describe yourself as an outsider? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, my whole life I've been an outsider, by okay. design or by coincidence, uh, by fate, however you want to describe it. I've always been an outsider. Um, you know, as you said, the alpha trooper, yeah. the alpha male for me. There's also like a sigma male who's would be an alpha in certain groups, but in many cases is an outsider because he doesn't quite fit. I'm right. too observant. I'm too analytical. I'm too strategic at times. Not to, you know, not to, the players are strategic. The outsiders are strategic in a different way. I'm just I'm looking at this stuff, saying I'm either going to win this game or I'm going to play a different game. I'm I'm willing to play with you a couple times, and once I realize that the 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 field is slanted and you're going to call you know all the fouls against me and you're going to get away with certain things, I just decide not to play. I'll go somewhere else. I'll find a game that I can win. Okay, exactly. So this is an outsider approach. Now, what's, what's also probably culturally different is, let's just say, a person like you in Hungary versus um, 
in the States or Canada uh, is going to be, in Hungary, you're going to have a much stronger inclination to reject the legitimacy of the main game itself. That because, I guess, and it's part of it is because it's an older society, and probably be true of somebody from the Middle East as well, or, or India. And that is the collectivism aspect of the culture too. I don't know. I well, know Greece is very collectivistic. I'm not sure. Oh, no, agree or... no, absolutely. But I think a lot of it has to do with age of society. And okay. that is yeah. that in the more mature society, this game has been played out for so long, right? That the awareness of the game increases to the extent that one of the things that I would say is unique about the Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, that would, you know, include, uh, you know, Britain and North America, is that they basically believe in the legitimacy of the game, as stated, the outer game. In other words, the, the, this, these are the rules, and it's fair, by and large. And that uh, there's a... Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, there's... I, yeah, the legitimacy of the game and the, the rules in Anglo-Saxon, um, right, so... Like you say, Britain, I guess, I feel like Germany probably has some of that. Maybe, I don't know, France probably, uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, Scandinavia, yes, certainly. Yeah, Netherlands, Belgium, whatnot. And then right. Canada, US, and Australia probably feel, fit that bill. And so it's, it tends to be white Anglo-Saxon, interesting right. enough. And it really, it, it's it's that kind of uh, plus or minus, like across the world, I would actually say overwhelmingly so, which is very interesting. Yeah. And that, that I, have I, a friend, say, I have a friend who yeah. touched on this similar point. Let me just throw yeah. this out as a yeah, go response. Ahead. Um, his name is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, he's, he's from the Netherlands, um, but um, Marco Blankenberg. Um, mm-hmm. and, he, and he he's developed with a, a friend of his, what he calls three colors of worldview culture, applied to culture. So he says that kind of the, white Anglo-Saxon waspy version is guilt and innocence. Yes. We, tend, we tend to be more in our culture than that culture. I, I, I'm French, Swedish, mutt, yep. English, you know, Irish mutt, whatever. So that the white Anglo-Saxon American European style is guilt and innocence. Um, Africa and Latin America, South America tend to be more about um, power and life. Use, use of power, life-giving power, so it's like like power could be used for life or it could be used for dominance. And then um, honor and shame is Asia, Middle East main, mainly. So if you kind of take the world and look at that. So what you're describing is that guilt and innocence color shaping culture of uh, Northern Europe and, and America and the white Anglo-Saxon, as you describe it. And it does show up in laws. It's interesting. Our last, one of our previous conversations, we talked about the legal frameworks of capitalism. And um, I kept coming back to the laws. You were talking about the trust circles of community, but I do believe that the laws impact how culture and society expresses guilt and innocence. And that is tied to what you were just describing in terms of um, accepting the, the rules of the game. There's a belief that laws are codified in paper. The constitution is an example of that. Right. And, and, well, and, and this, is, this is one of the things which is, I guess, in fact, the real issue today, let's just say, um, 
And I think the Trump administration really brought this to the fore. But I think it started with our first example of it was, um, you know, George W. Bush, where we really started to see examples of sort of egregious examples of people who seem to be above the law, where they just got away with it. Yeah. I mean, again, this is, you know, our, our entire history runs all the way back. I mean, you know, you can go back to Greek and Roman polity all throughout European history and into American history. There were people that escaped that the laws don't apply equally to. And it's, it's also interesting in terms of the constitution, like John Adams said, we are a nation of laws, not of men. And that's wrong. We're a nation of political will, not of laws or men and the political will of men in applying laws equally maintains an ordered society. And if we lose that, which we've been losing and we've lost, and even at that time, it wasn't, the grip wasn't firm. But if you, if you don't have the will to apply these laws equally, and if you allow people to get away with certain things, every, the, it will crumble. It, the edifice oh. of our culture and society will crumble under the weight of its own immorality. Okay, now, within the game, within, within the game metaphor, how the how the three will approach it that even that issue that right. we're talking about right is the majority of us will look for the laws to be legitimate now in the case of the outsider and the player there will be interesting exceptions to that the outsider because they've experienced very often being the odd one out and being treated unfairly are not fully full believers in the legitimacy of these laws. Very often they're burned. So that if, if, if they have to take the testimony of one or the other, they'll tend to believe the other, not them. Because the other being more like the group and they're on the outside. And every outsider to some extent has experienced that, that they're less likely to be listened to. Right. Because of the otherness. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Trump and, and Bush, yep. Um, yep. and we've talked politics before, but I, I think that this might be helpful if you'll, if you'll indulge me. Let's, sure. If, let's kind of talk through some of, for American history, which I'm more familiar yep. with, and I don't know if it would apply to Canadian history, but it's yep. fun to do it with American history. We have some interesting uh, characters in our, in our presidential oh, yeah, politics. More colorful, certainly. <laughs> so we could, we could go back and look at each person and try to label them as either a player, each president of our history, label them as either a player, a trooper, or an outsider. So sure. we have okay, shoot. Trump. Go ahead. Okay, oh, Trump, obvious player. You think he's a player? Now, oh, he, 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 didn't, he went to University of Pennsylvania. Mm. He, he played the game in New York City well in real mm. estate, but well, he, he was I mean, considered, he, he wasn't considered a member of the club at, at, you know, in New York City, well, he, he started his own real times. Went bankrupt six times, absolutely. So, you know, and that whatever impact that had on him, he suffered, you know, he, he didn't suffer personally, although there was times when he was low, yeah. but he was able to recover. His dad 
you know, kicked in the millions of dollars to get him started, which, you know, we've talked about that with other people. So um, Gates and, and mm-hmm. others, Zuckerberg had some advantages in getting their business started. Many people do. And we all know this. If you, if you know anything about business, you know, even Warren Buffett had people that invested in his early company because he couldn't do it on his own. And he used that money to make more money for himself and his, his, his uh, partners. Or oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's- so that's not unusual entirely, but was Trump an insider? Was Trump an insider? as a player in the club? Was he accepted as a member of the club in good standing? Did he well, play that okay. game? Now, now we get into, again, the subterfuge. If we take a look at Trump, he was positioned as a guy from the outside, not part of the club, you know, didn't grow up in Manhattan. I think he grew up in what, Queens or Brooklyn or whatever. Yeah, sure. You, know, you, mean, had a, you know, nice house there and all that kind right. of thing. The, the rest of the country, that's Manhattan, that's New York City, yeah. you know, but the fact no, that it, it's a different borough makes a big difference in there. And that, who lives in Manhattan? I guess, you know, the Upper East Siders do. Well, yeah, well, no, exactly. No, it's still, it's for, for, for him, it would make a difference. Right. So, difference. He's, so he's got his, his, his group, his little club. Of yeah, I think they even have property out on Long Island or something, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> among the high players, he'd be a clown, okay? A clown. I mean, the, we're talking the high, high players. They just wouldn't even give him the time of day. Um, but he was, and when you take a look at his father, and you take a look at his father's ambitions, and then you take a look at the people who are around him, like that uh, lawyer who was also the number two to McCarthy, uh, Cohn. Yeah. This person is what I would call a construct. He's completely constructed to be a certain kind of individual that they totally have manufactured. They keep bailing him out. They keep doing this. But right. ultimately, did he do that or did he do that to himself? I mean, the interesting thing is his life was branding and salesmanship. I thought he was a con man. We talked about the charlatan nature, the con man. Early on, I'm like, he's a used car salesman. I never, you know, I, I never saw him as a, you know, a legitimate aspirational leader figure in my life. I saw him as the guy that's selling steaks and ties and, and Trump university stuff. Now he, he, the thing about him that is odd from a American history standpoint is he could have done all those things to make money. He started his, his uh, apprentice show. And that was another moment of him branding himself for the American public. And he shows up on talk shows. He shows up on Oprah. So he wanted to be the blonde haired, you know, real estate tycoon playboy. He's Mar-a-Lago down in Florida and he's hosting stuff and he's, he's, but he never drank, you know, so which is a weird thing. I mean, it's just weird. Like he, the guy doesn't get drunk. So he, and he, he has women around and yes, he's probably hooking up with some of these women, whether it's the um, playboy bunnies or whatnot. And yet he's a germaphobe. Okay, that's a little weird to me. Like, I don't see you hanging out with the Playboy bunnies and you're wearing a body condom and trying to avoid every, in, every human um, fluid. That doesn't work for me, man. There's something weird going on there. So I think he took on this position of uh, Playboy his, in order to make money. But, he, but that's not really who he was. And the patriotism for America was the thing yeah. that people resonated with. Once he started hugging the flag, and saying certain things that American people, the American population, a lot of them wanted to hear, he became the conduit. He became their avatar in a way. And, and the branding aside, the, all that was was name recognition for him. You know, he said that as long as they spell my name right, I don't care about the bad publicity. I can be a tabloid name as long as they get my brain, my name right. They're putting me out there. Everyone will know my name. And when it comes to pulling the lever in an election, name recognition 
and free press, which the media was complicit in giving him, they gave him multiple billions of dollars of free press that, that normally other politicians, the dopey, you know, cheap suit, you know, off the rack knockoff suit wearing guys, they can't, they can't get out there. They couldn't do that. And in the primary run up, he dominated with free press and, and tweets social media he turned that social media that's why they continually started checking him and towards the end of the 2020 election the last year as the election was coming up they literally cut him off because they didn't want his tweets penetrating the population they 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 censored his tweets and they've shut him off from from social media because he was too effective in messaging over their heads which honestly you know you look at another republican president ronald reagan was attempting to do. And people, you know, a lot of people like to make that comparison, but Ronald Reagan continually went over the heads of the media to try and reach the American people. You have Democrat presidents like Obama, who I would say in comparison, so we can, we could debate Trump all day long and we'll come back to him, but I I want to make some progress here on the, on the um, presidential list. So if we go back to Obama, I think we need to be honest with his role and position. And I think that he, um, you know, he had uh, wealthy parents or wealthy grandparents. His his dad was, um, you know, Kenyan scholar. Mom, I think from Kansas, but he lived um, a portion of his life in Hawaii. Was pretty well taken care of. They had some money out there. Makes it to Occidental College in uh, Southern California, then to mm-hmm. Columbia, and eventually to Harvard Law. So he went, I think, from Occidental to Columbia for his undergrad degree. Went to Harvard Law for his JD, and then goes to um, uh, University of Chicago. Chicago, am I right? I think so. Yep, yeah, Chicago. To uh, to teach. And Chicago is a very strategic move on his part, coming with the Harvard credential to Chicago from an American political history standpoint. Chicago is a huge Midwestern city. It's it's the third largest city or, you know, I think it's New York, LA, and then Chicago, and it has been for years. But it also sits as like this Midwestern hub city, which has a large African-American population and a history of machine politics that if he could get into that group, he could use that to dominate democratic politics going forward. Hillary Clinton actually grew up in Chicago. Interesting. Yeah. So the, I mean, you know, again, as we're describing him, okay. Both of them are in a way. Okay. Actually, you know, a good one to compare as a third would be Bush. Yeah, which again, Bush, family man. This is my take on Bush. He's the Republican yep. establishment, the Rockefeller Republican. Rockefeller was a New York State Republican governor, but he built half the state. You know, or he has his name on a bunch of stuff in Al- Albany, the capital of New York State. Rockefeller Republicans and Bush was a Texas oil man. His dad, CIA uh, vice president for um, Reagan. So George W. Bush gets all the advantages of money and gets into Yale. Um, where Clinton went for undergrad school, Clinton, both Clinton, Hillary, and Bill went to Yale. That's right. Bush was in Yale. I don't, I don't know when they graduated. I don't know if they, I don't think they overlap, but they're both baby boomers coming up through the ranks. Bush goes National Guard, doesn't actually um, see action whenever that was in his life. Kind of, you know, gets the the military credentials, which a lot of politicians want to get. They want to get a little, you know, spe- certain politicians. That was that was always. It's a kind of a thing, sure. kind of a funny thing, right? You can go to the military and you can get that. I served in the military. I've worn the uniform kind of imprimatur. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, works his way up to, I guess he, he did some oil stuff. Then he was the owner of the Houston Astros. How do you get to be the owner of the Houston Astros? Well, with oil money, because he was such a 
effective executive oil manager, right? No, it was his dad's business. They did Kenny, Kenny Bunkport trips up to the North uh, East, which is in uh, Massachusetts or New Hampshire, whatever it is up there. So he's, he's, so his dad's connected to the Northeastern power scene of the Republican, which is where Harvard is located in, in Boston. He's doing the Texas thing. Cause you know, again, the country is spread out, but it's, you know, the way that this club works between Harvard and Yale and Princeton and whatnot, but the Harvard Yale Princeton club is a location in certain cities where you can only enter if you're a member of Harvard, Princeton and Yale and you wear the right shoes and then you get to hang out with these people. So Bush was tied into that. His son, H.W. Bush. So George H.W. Um, Bush is the father. His son, Walk W. Bush, gets into the presidency, essentially riding on the coattails of his, of his dad's machine. So now let's take a look at the three from a game point of view. Right. Yeah. All three of them, I would say, are, you know, perfectly groomed from success from a very young point. I think these decisions are probably made just like road scholarship. You know, what was that right. about? Uh, Clinton is a Rhodes Scholar. Yes. So you're, so you're looking at people who at a young age, you know, in their 20s. Right. And Clinton, I have to say, Clinton's the other, if we, if, you know, we have the exactly. three, but if you add Clinton in there, this is a guy that came up from nothing in Arkansas, used his yep. state governorship, but he was smart. So he, he went to, um, um, or maybe it was the other way around, Yale undergrad and then mm. Harvard Law. I think that was it. But anyway, so the guy, he was ambitious and they could see Hillary, you know, Hillary's right. descriptions of him early on is like, this guy was magnetic, you know, he was um, charismatic and people just were attracted to him. And he had that, um, you know, whatever the Savoir Faire, the 70s up and coming, you know, or the 60s child, the flower, the hippie, there was some, you know, all those different things, the funk, he was into it all. And he could, you know, so he was wooing women and Hillary caught his eye. And what they saw was kind of a political partnership between them was, you know, she'll play the, the, the straight man, the straight woman, so to speak, she could, um, maneuver things. She had more connections into Chicago. This is the, he's the, the golden boy, the golden child. So, between the two of them, he could be a little wild. She'll be kind of in the back of, you know, back of the office or back scene under underneath the surface in some ways, working different angles. They're, they're, they're mutually um, partners in this project to ascend to the white house essentially. And then, you know, it made more sense for him to return to Arkansas where he could become governor because that was a platform and a stepping stone to get into the presidency. It was all part of a grand plan. And he started working yep. at angles in, in Arkansas. So of those four Bush um, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, or I think as, as somebody said, a silver foot in his mouth, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> Bush was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Clinton was born with nothing. Um, Obama came up from nothing uh, Trump had many advantages with his dad, but he's not a part of the Bush Republican machine, the Rockefeller Republican Bush machine. Trump was a political independent. He was a New York. He kind of, I think he was a Democrat for a couple of years, independent, and then switched around. He basically was an opportunist, right? But he had the advantages of his dad's money, but he had to make, he had to cut his teeth in Manhattan. So he took his dad's business, I think in, like you say, Queens or Brooklyn or Long Island, took some real estate and he decided, I'm going to make my fortune in Manhattan, went in the deep end, swims with the sharks, gets cut up, but cut, does some cutting himself, goes and then starts building his real estate business. So I think that, you know, of those four presidents, um, obviously Bush had the greatest advantages of status Trump probably had the next next most. 
than Obama in some ways because his 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 wife's family was pretty well off, and Clinton's at the at the bottom in terms of up and coming, having very little. Uh, to speak of in terms of political advantage, but he had intelligence and ambition. And he worked that all the way up through Harvard, Yale, into the White House. Well, and, and I would say, take a look at the distinction between the two. But I feel like there's a line that we're cutting well, through this here. Is, we are making this is, this is excellent. This is excellent. And the thing is, let's remember where we were at the end of this, because we can continue this for, for sure. Because one of the things that I would just like to say um, in, with respect to those two, and make a distinction between... The, the four. So we're talking about Bush, uh, Clinton, uh, we're talking about Trump, and we're talking about Obama. Trump and Obama, no, sorry, Trump and Bush are two idiots. I mean, plain and simple, except for the fact that Bush appears to be an idiot, but he's not quite so stupid. But the thing about that yeah, is, I'm not even sure how dumb Trump is, but they come off like you, you've used the word clowns. Oh, I no. said they, they are like Trump was strategic in the way he built his business, no, but he didn't build and it. His, what I'm just saying is and they, his they, books they, and his no, but dude, all those, all that stuff was brand. manufactured to me, to they're, me, it's the business world perhaps, at some point, like you, I, I would just, I would challenge the notion that he was an idiot and so stupid as to get lucky by becoming a, a, a billionaire, even if he's leveraged. No, he didn't himself. get lucky. He didn't get lucky. Oh, I, I'm not saying you got lucky for a second. I'm saying that how is it that they've got him dead to rights so many times? He's so sloppy in terms of all the things that he does. Are you kidding? Can you imagine anybody in your acquaintanceship who did one tenth of what he's done and wouldn't be already put away long time ago. So already something is so suspicious that somehow he's still out there and they can't nail him because right, he's like just the, so the Teflon Don idea. Oh, yeah. oh, he's it's, he's it's able only, to skate on so many different it, charges, whether it was, you know, exactly. the Russian collusion story is nonsense, but even if it's dealing with Russian mob in New York City and the construction racket and some other things that he was doing, I mean, he, you can't, you can't get into dirty businesses and not get dirty. You know, he's walking away no, clean and you wonder but, what, but it, what those connections no, but in, were. And the thing is, he didn't, he, he's not a dissident. Real estate is messy. It's a messy business. No, but, There's a lot of money flowing even, around, a lot of stuff going sideways. He's not even careful. He's not even disciplined. He's not like. And that's where someone comes in his fixer. But, but we always, but you know, notice how we're always looking for a reason to make this cognitive dissonance that, oh, he must be smart because he can't be as dumb as he appears because otherwise, how could he have done this? And we're always working backwards. And this is constructed. And that's what I'm just saying is that it's proof that they've got such a lock on this system that, and I would put Putin in here as well. If we actually take a look at Putin's background, who he is, how he came up and everything like that, he's another constructed individual. He was nobody in the KGB and all of a sudden now he's running the show. Who is this guy? Right. So you, you, you assign av like avarice, greed, um, not even ambition. Like what, what they, allowed, like if they picked him again, the, you could like the KGB and the Russian Politburo and the Soviet party at the time back in before 91, when it broke up. And since then it still maintains the power and control, even though it's something different than that, whatever you want to call it, the there's one party rule in Russia. So whoever picked Ru Putin did so for some reason, was he malleable enough, but he demonstrated that he could be the puppet for them 
and in benefit and it benefits himself. I mean, he has all this money overseas. You've seen the the um, Panama documents and all the money that he he's, that. he's he's raped his own country, taken all their money and used it for himself and stocked it away in his own accounts. So he's benefited personally from being quote unquote used by. But he's, the he's no, he he got there by being a good loyalist in the KGB. Sure he, did. he came up behind the yeah, mayor. He, he came up behind the mayor, the extremely corrupt mayor of Petersburg, protecting him. He protected Yeltsin. He was protecting everybody as he came up, and they all basically were able to escape, you know, with the loot. So, no, no, he's he's just, you know, now a he's party boy. But yeah, he was yeah, a party no, boy. He, you may be a little bit more of a, like you say, a bodyguard in some ways as a KGB. I, but all these things are, in a way, drama and narrative that we place on it. I think all the all the... All the way the game works on that level is they've got a lock on power. They give you basically a script and a role, and then they choose somebody who's going to play that script. And I think that the one thing that they will do with each one of those four individuals, so this is a little bit like the bridge of San Luis Rey, how they all fall and how did they all get on the bridge at that moment? And so what did all these people, in fact, why don't we leave it there? And when we're going to answer that question next, and I'm just thinking this is a logical place, okay? Because this perfect. is like the bridge of San Louis Ray. So, I like so, the analogy. Let's. So, but let's just to, to recap, just for a second, to sure. just to just to, to 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 tie this up because we're talking about Clinton, we're talking about Putin. Well, let's set aside Putin for now. We have Clint. We have Clinton. Um, so if you go back to '92, '92 to '98 is Clinton. Uh, yep. uh, excuse me, '92 to 2000 is Clinton. 2000 to 2008 is Bush. Obama is 2008 to 2016 and then mm-hmm. Trump 16 to 20. And we're going to not, we're going to ignore Joe Biden for now. So we have no, the, then we'll the add in 20, Trump. 30 years. Almost. And then in fact, at a later point, in fact, what we can even add in, I was thinking we could add in say Trudeau, we could add in Putin. There'll be, it'll, it, it's um, it, it all, you can even add in Macron in there. It all, it just all fans out in a perfect pattern. Yeah, Absolutely. Because because we're we're really seeing similar patterns, and I guess one question that I would sort of ask is, if you wanted a person to play kind of like Manchurian candidate in the sense of play a part, absolutely, you're you're a total power broker, and you want the person to play this robotic part. The part doesn't have to be assassinating somebody else; it just has to be a part that he, they have to absolutely play. What kind of individual, and you don't have to answer this, but it's something for us to ponder on. What would be the personality profile of the kind of individual that you would want in such a situation?